0: presence here in this place. We thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for a public place where we can gather and openly proclaim your name and read your word and declare that your kingdom is here. Lord, we thank you that we have that privilege and freedom in this country. Lord, we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the world today in Asia where they do not have that privilege. We thank you for the team that's gone out from our church to go and bring encouragement and support and we pray that you would give them the confidence to bring that ministry of hope and joy and strengthening the church there in Asia. We also pray that you give them the humility to know that they are there as, as learners and hearers to observe what does it look like to be a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ in a place where there's persecution. So we pray that you would change their hearts as well, that they would go bringing something but also go to receive something from you as well. And we thank you that we come with that same heart today that you've called us members of your body that we look to you as our head and that you've gifted each one of us if we are your sons and daughters with gifts that are to be used to edify the body to build up to bring glory to you so lord we come today to bring something and we also come to receive to receive from one another and to be built up to receive from your spirit to receive from your word today and lord jesus we come to receive from you we look to you today we pray that you would open our eyes to see you as God's greatest gift that we all need. We thank you now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, why don't you take a seat and as you do, if you've got a bulletin, I just would, uh, first of all, there are sermon notes in there that you can follow along with as we go uh, to John's gospel, John chapter 3. But also in the announcement section, there's some things happening to make you aware of. First of all, we're coming into Easter season here and so next Sunday is already Palm Sunday and then two weeks from today is Easter Sunday, if you can believe it. I would just challenge and encourage you to be thinking about who is someone in your life that you could invite to come to church with you? Now, um, Sometimes we can speak disparagingly of people who only go to church twice a year at Easter and Christmas time, but the fact is it is a time of the year when people's hearts are attuned to God and maybe they're open to doing what God has been uh, whispering to them all along and you could be that person to make it easier and say, well, how'd you like to come to church with me? So maybe you've got somebody in one of these categories, someone that you used to go to church with. And for one reason or another, they, they left uh, and, and stopped going to church. You know, maybe they said, oh, we're going to go to a different church. Maybe they said, well, we got hurt by someone in church. Uh, maybe they said, we're, we're just too busy and can't make it on Sundays. But now as you still have a relationship with this person, but you're thinking, you know, actually they're not being fed anywhere and they're really floundering as a follower of Jesus, not in relationship. Maybe you've got someone like that in your life that you could reach out to. Maybe you've got somebody who's a neighbor, who just is really has no idea about the gospel at all. And you could be the one that, through the the relationship that you've been working on building, could reach out and now say, how'd you like to find out some more about this Jesus that I've been telling you about? Maybe that's the person that you could invite to church with you. Maybe it's someone who's really been bruised and hurt and wounded and God would use you to bring that hope as well. So it's not just about coming to church, right? But it's also about bringing the gospel and being willing to do that. It's just that Easter makes it super easy because lots of people are going to church on Easter Sunday. So be praying and thinking, who is God prompting you to reach out to in your neighborhood, in your family, at your workplace, at school? And you be that one that brings good news and invites them to come along with you. All right, so there's a little challenge. The other thing happening around Easter season, on that Thursday, right before Easter, on Monday, Thursday, April 18th, uh, the youth group, the youth ministry is going to be uh, putting on a Maundy Thursday service and what that is is to commemorate the foot washing part of the Last Supper when there was serving uh, the body of Christ and so uh, there'll be scripture reading, songs contemplation, worship there, candles, and, and looking, kind of preparing our hearts for uh, Good Friday and, and Easter weekend. And so that's a family night at youth group at the ministry center that night, not just for the students, but also for anyone else from the church family that would like to go there at 630 on that Thursday night. So I'll, I'll leave the other announcements for you to take a look at uh, other things happening in the bulletin. But today we're going to be turning to John chapter 3. Now let me ask you a question. You know, what, what, you, what would you say is the most popular scripture verse ever? That, you know, it's the scripture verse that people write on a piece of cardboard and hold up against the plexiglass at the hockey games. What would you say, you know, s- shout it out if you know the chapter verse and reference. <laughs> John, it was actually John 3.16, Brian, but that, yeah, Ecclesiastes is another good book. Good, um, the rest of you got it right. That was, that's correct. <laughs> There's always somebody in the crowd, right? Yes. John 3.16. Let's say it together, all right? Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Two of you got that. Good. Okay. I think I was going NKJV there, so that might have been the, the, the hurdle. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a, a very common verse that a lot of people have heard. A lot of people know it's a, it's a life-giving verse. It's a hope-filled verse. It's in the chapter of John's gospel that we're going to take a look at today. But we're going to look at that in context today. So let's, let's read together, beginning in John chapter 3, a story of Jesus having a conversation with one man. This isn't the Sermon on the Mount with crowds there before him, hearing his teaching, hearing his wisdom. This isn't a, a supper with a, group, a room full of disciples. This is Jesus with one man named Nicodemus, conversation that he has. And so here in John chapter 3, verse 1, we, we meet this man named Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We learn a couple things about Nicodemus right away. He's an important person. He's not only a Pharisee, he's a ruler of the Jews. This is a guy with a title. It's Reverend Dr. Bishop Nicodemus, if you please. It's an important person. And he comes to Jesus. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, so he's speaking either in the kind of the, the royal third person where you refer, refer to yourself in the plural, we find, when actually you're saying I find. So it's either that or he's speaking on behalf of these influential, powerful religious people that he represents, the Pharisees, and he's a ruler of that group. He also comes at nighttime. Now, that's not just an incidental. Um, note here in John's Gospel. If you do a study of the word night throughout John's Gospel, you'll find that every time it's either literally or figuratively uh, the opposite of light. Duh. But it's the opposite of living in God's plans and living in God's kingdom and and, and walking in light. It's a negative word that's, it, it, it denotes something that's shady, something that's hidden, something that's opposed to God's truth. And so Nicodemus is coming to him by night, but it's even darker than he knows. He's coming from a place of where he believes that he knows something about Jesus and he's able to definitively make some observations and statements. And he's about to find out that he's actually walking in total spiritual darkness, not just the night of day where he's kind of sneaking into Jesus' presence, but there's a darkness of the soul as well within Nicodemus and he's coming to tell Jesus some things about Jesus we know these things we've observed your miraculous works and so then we can ascertain that you're from God and that you're a teacher from him because otherwise these signs would not be possible that 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 really actually puts Nicodemus in the category of faith that we just read at the end of John chapter 2 um, you know, th- there are those who believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So Nicodemus is really connected with that passage that comes right before John 3. Those who had a, a faith that was based in kind of a what's-in-it-for-me sort of a faith, and they were looking at the, the works that Jesus did, but Jesus uh, did not recognize that faith as genuine faith. There were others who had a genuine faith They were drawn to Jesus uh, and, and had eyes to see, but Nicodemus is really in this category who's attracted by the signs. And, and now uh, Jesus turns everything on its head at this point in the conversation because Nicodemus came with some confidence that you know we've uh, made some determinations about who you are, Jesus, and we just want to val- validate and verify that what we've seen and observed is true. Jesus now turns it around. He starts telling Nicodemus, Things about Nicodemus. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, we we read there also at the end of chapter two that Jesus was not that impressed with the people who saw the signs and believed in him because of the signs. In fact, he didn't really care. Uh, about the opinion of people because it says at the very end, he himself knew what was in a man. And ladies, that doesn't let you off the hook. It's that general use of the word. He knows what's in every man, woman, child, teenager. He knows exactly what's in your heart. And so when Nicodemus came to him to tell Jesus some definitive statements about who you are, where you came from, and what your purposes are, or where your power and your abilities came from, Jesus looks right at him and peers into his soul And he says, there's some things that you need to know about you that I know. Unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Your condition is so desperate, Nicodemus, that you can't even see God's kingdom as you are right now, much less enter that kingdom. And there's humility that's required when you recognize that fact. So maybe today you've come to church and maybe you've got a, a resume like Nicodemus does of you know how many years you've attended church services, Sunday school classes, vacation Bible schools when you were a kid. Maybe you've got every lyric of every worship song we sang today memorized. Maybe you read this Bible through every year and you get to a place in your life where you kind of start to think that I definitively know some things about God and I can tell him some things about himself. And today as Nicodemus experienced God may surprise you by requiring some humility of you and saying there's some things about you that you need to be aware of today. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I love the humility of a theologian from the last century, the 1900s, named Karl Barth. Probably the most influential theologian of the 20th century. Carl Barth, over the course of 35 years, wrote a 13-volume magnum opus called Church Dogmatics. I don't recommend any of you ever, I don't think they have it on Kindle or, or, or Audible. Um, a very weighty, heavy, serious treatment of all of, really, all of Scripture, all of theology. And here's what he, in, his, in, in humility, uh, you know, the most influential theologian of the 20th century, 13 volumes, fat books on church dogmatics. Here's what he said of all that knowledge, all that experience, his resume. On his 82nd birthday, he said this, The angels laugh at old Carl. They laugh at his trying to capture the truth about God in a book on dogmatics. They laugh because volume follows volume, each thicker than the last. And as they laugh, they say to each other, look, there he goes with his barrow, wheelbarrow, full of volumes on dogmatics. What a good, humble self-appraisal, right? That he's able to look at, you know, this is my life work, trying to say some things about God, and yet the angels look at all this work and they laugh. I think that was the experience of Nicodemus that day as he came to Jesus to tell tell him some things and verify some things so he could go back to his Pharisee buddies. And all of a sudden Jesus says, wait a minute, I'm going to tell you some things about you today. What do you do with that? Well, I hope, I hope, as Nicodemus did, as we, we hear the rest of his story, he humbled himself. I hope you can humble yourself today and acknowledge your utter dependence upon him because the, at the heart of what Jesus is saying, that birth from above, that born again, that he's going to unpack as we continue on here in John 3, at the heart of that is the fact that you don't just need a little facelift or like a U 2.0, an upgrade. You need a complete rebirth, a complete transformation, a radical overhaul and it's something that only God can do in you and that should bring humility to each one of us. We should pray that prayer that David prayed in Psalm 25. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my savior and my hope is in you all day long. Nicodemus hears this uh, shocking statement of Jesus that you can't even see God's kingdom unless you are born again. He doesn't know what to do with it. This was not what he expected and it, it sets him back on his heels and he transitions from confidence at the beginning of this dialogue to now bewilderment. Here's what he says in verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? There's some sarcasm. There's confusion. And there's questioning. And so Jesus responds in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's a bit of a cryptic uh, paragraph there in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. So let's try to unpack that a little bit. I think again, he's saying that you you can't just turn over a new leaf Nicodemus, you can't make a resolution. You can't try a little bit harder. You can't upgrade yourself. All of that is utterly insufficient. It's miserably deficient. It's completely inadequate. You can't change yourself, Nicodemus. The the depraved condition that you're in cannot be remedied by any action on your part. And what's required is a radical transformation, a complete overhaul, a new birth from above that involves water and spirit. That's God's work in you. So I think that water and spirit part, the birth of water and the birth of spirit um, that's that's a challenging phrase there. But Jesus expects that Nicodemus is going to know what he's talking about because this guy is, you know, the Reverend Dr. Bishop Nicodemus. He's read his Old Testament. He's got portions of it memorized. He's been teaching other Pharisees the truth. So he should know what water and spirit is all about. And yet he's still bewildered, confused, incredulous, disbelieving, Nicodemus it really is, at the, end of, at the end of this discussion of birth, new birth, water, and spirit, now it's even gotten worse because first Jesus said, unless you've been born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now he's kind of up the ante and said you can't even, and you also can't enter the kingdom of God. Not only can you not see it, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you experience this birth from above or this new birth, this being born again. And there's some, there's some common sense uh, language here in what Jesus is saying, right? Prior to modern meteorology where we can talk about wind patterns, you know, really there was no way at this time in history to, to determine where the wind comes from or where it's going. You could see the effects of the wind. You could see branches moving and grass swaying. But you can't say where that came from or where it's going. And you understand that it's a power outside of yourself That's how it is with this spiritual birth that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. And it doesn't seem like any of that dialogue brought any clarity to Nicodemus because he says in verse 9, how can these things be? Uh, Now, now, what tone of voice did Nicodemus use there in verse 9? I think we have a clue based on the severity of Jesus' response in verse 10. It wasn't like kind of an inquisitive, genuine, open question. Oh, Jesus, tell me more. How can these things be with a smile on his face? There There was some little bite to that question because Jesus reprimands him and rebukes him in verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You know, you've got a title, Nicodemus, right? The ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. And you don't understand what I'm talking about and you're coming to me with a skeptical question. Nicodemus, have you read Genesis 1? The giver of life, that first work of creation. Nicodemus, just go back to the very beginning of the Old Testament where it says, the Spirit of God was over the waters and God said, let there be light. The Creator God, the Maker of heaven and earth, He did that first work of creation, and he's doing a new work of creation today. Nicodemus, your first physical birth, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. You didn't get yourself out of that birth canal, you didn't cause the cells to multiply and replicate, and you didn't connect yourself to that umbilical cord. You were completely and utterly passive and dependent in that process on the Creator God making you. And in the exact same way, you need a spiritual birth, a radical transformation, a birth from above. Another passage that if Nicodemus would have been listening to the water and spirit that he may have heard, let's take a look here. There's there's a very clear passage in Ezekiel, another Old Testament passage that, that as a teacher, as a ruler of Israel, he should have read and known and thought of, promises about what God would do in the last days when he begins his work of redemption. Let's read uh, in verse 22 of Exodus 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I think there is a slide on this. Uh, Exodus 36, verse 22 or, I'm sorry, Ezekiel. Yeah, I said, the, I said the wrong. Thank you. I'm reading in the right place. I just said the wrong reference. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. And so God is, God is saying to his people in the Old Testament, what I'm about to do isn't for you. It's for the sake of my holy name. The salvation I'm about to bring isn't about you, Israel. Israel. It's about me and my greater glory. This is God speaking to his people. Verse 23, "...and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord," declares the Lord God, "...when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes." I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel." If you keep reading there in Ezekiel, the next chapter, chapter 37, is a radical transformation story of a valley of dry bones. Not just dead corpses, so dead that there's no flesh left on them. All you've got left is brittle, dry bones as the remains of where there used to be life. And the miracle here in Ezekiel chapter 37 is that God by his spirit breathes new life into those dry dead bones and they come to life. And and Jesus is having a conversation with this ruler of the Pharisees, this guy who has read his Old Testament and he's telling him, hey, that day of new creation, of sprinkling with clean water, of new hearts, New spirit, land, crops, blessing, forgiveness. That day is here. Dead bones, putting on flesh and coming to life. That day is here. There's a new birth happening, Nicodemus. And he's totally confused. How can this be? And so Jesus reprimands him. But he continues to Speak truth here to Nicodemus. There is there's grace along with the rebuke. And so in verse 11, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you all do not receive our testimony. Now I, I think there, notice the change as Jesus went from verse uh, 10 to 11. First he's talking to Nicodemus in the first person. Are you the teacher of Israel, singular? And yet you do not understand these things? All of a sudden Jesus now, I think, he's, I think he's kind of poking fun at the beginning of the conversation when Nicodemus said, we know that you are a teacher from God, Rabbi, that you've been sent from him. Otherwise, we know that you couldn't do these miraculous works. And then Jesus puts it in that, in that plural voice here and he says, "We, I, I tell you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. In other words, you and all your Pharisee buddies have a very limited perspective on reality. You can only speak of what you've seen and what you know. But I've just gotten done telling you, Nicodemus, that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't know the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you are radically transformed. Not just a little upgrade, a little tweak, adding a little Jesus onto whatever else it is that you have going on. You need a complete overhaul. And that's a work of God. That's a work of new creation. Those dead bones in the valley in Ezekiel Ezekiel 37, man, what could they do to breathe new life into themselves. If you're a pile of calcium in bone form laying on the ground in the dirt, what hope can you have of producing life? That's only a miraculous work of the giver of life. And that's what's required. And and that's your condition apart from a work of Jesus in you and, and the, the judgment on Nicodemus and on those who he represents is that he says at the, verse, at the end of verse 11, you, you all do not receive our testimony. So in other words, the, the teaching that Jesus is bringing, not just with his words, but also with his examples, they've seen the mighty works. So there's evidence that God's kingdom is here And there's teaching to corroborate what the Old Testament had prophesied. Jesus is proclaiming in word and in deed that God's kingdom has arrived. And that's the testimony. And yet those who should have eyes to see and ears to hear are oblivious to the truth that God's kingdom is here now, that the Messiah has come. Verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There's more I could tell you, Nicodemus, but you're not ready for it. You've not experienced that birth from above, that new birth. And so if I start to tell you about heavenly things, it's going to go over your head in one ear and out the other. Verse 13, Now, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. There's echoes of that verse back in Proverbs chapter 30. Let me read a couple of verses here in Proverbs 30 verse 2. Here's a humility verse. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. Ladies don't, I wouldn't recommend you put that on the Father's Day card. Or, Surely I am too stupid, the opposite of wisdom, to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. And there's some, there's some Old Testament uh, there's an Old Testament preview of what we're reading here in John 3. Some allusion and echoes of of Proverbs 30 right here in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. There is someone who has ascended and descended. He is qualified to provide eyewitness testimony of heavenly things. Wisdom resides in heaven, the sphere of reality that God occupies. There is no wisdom here, okay? There's not like human wisdom and divine wisdom. There's only one source of wisdom. And anyone that you meet that thinks that they've got some human wisdom apart from God is mistaken, misguided. There's one source of truth. There's one fount of wisdom, and it's in God alone. And it was true in Proverbs It's true at the time of Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus, and it's true right now today. And so you'll hear a lot of earthly wisdom, right, floating around the pundits on on the news talk shows, the social media people, the bloggers. Anyone you ask will have an opinion to offer, and yet there's only one source of wisdom, and he came from God, and his name is Jesus, And he's standing here having a conversation with Nicodemus this night in the darkness of night. And Jesus says there's one testimony that you can believe. The Son of Man. Things are beginning to click for Nicodemus. And then there's one more reference that Jesus brings into this discussion here in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That story, that Old Testament story, you can go back and read it in Numbers 21. It's a story of a day when God poured out his wrath on his own people because they were grumbling, they were uh, rebelling, they were disbelieving. And so, as a result, as a consequence, God poured out his wrath and punishment on them in the form of poisonous snakes. That moved throughout the Israelites biting people who died from the venom in these snake bites. That seems pretty harsh but we're not God, he is. And there is a, ho- God is a holy God. There are consequences to sin and to rebellion and to turning our backs on him. His wrath and his judgment are the consequence of our rebellion. That's why we're in such a desperate state. That's why we're in such a need of a radical transformation, not just a little something else to kind of turn over a new leaf, but new birth. And God provided the way back in Numbers 21 as he gave instructions. And he said, I, I'm bringing the wrath, but I'm also going to bring the cure, the antidote, the remedy. And so he instructed his people in, in Numbers 21 to fashion a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. He told Moses to lift it up. you got a a bronze snake on a pole. And then anyone who had been bitten looks to that and they're healed. They're cured. It didn't prevent them from being bitten. These were people who experienced the wrath of God. And they're about to die because of it. People who had already been bitten. But as they looked to the snake lifted up, God would bring the healing, bring the cure. Now, does it seem surprising to anyone but me that Jesus here is telling Nicodemus, yeah, uh, I'm kind of like a snake on a pole. Does that seem like a strange metaphor? Can you imagine any other world religion saying, you know, our follower, the one that we hope in is, you know, metaphorically could be like a snake up on a pole. Does that seem strange to you? It strikes me as a bit unusual. And yet, really, it's a story of God's work of redemption, God bringing the cure, the antidote to his wrath that we are actually deserving of. Looking to that symbol of the curse as a way of God bringing healing. The sad part of that story back in the Old Testament, it continues on. Generations later, you read the end of that story in 2 Kings chapter 18. Uh, After a series of bad kings in Judah and Israel, there's one good king finally named Hezekiah. And he's dealing with idolatry among God's people. And guess what? After Moses lifted up that serpent and God did bring healing to those who looked at it, guess what happened? God's people turned that bronze serpent into an idol that they began to worship. And they looked to the means of God's salvation and healing as a god. And so Hezekiah had to come and along with the other pagan deities, the Baals and the Ashteropols, He had to deal with this, this bronze serpent and destroy it and remove it as an object of worship. And that's where the analogy breaks down because here, Jesus is saying, not only am I the means of salvation, I am the object of worship as well. And this Jesus who is lifted up, it's not idolatry to worship him as the means that God brings his healing and his redemption and his work. In fact, that's entirely appropriate. That's what we're called to do, to see him as he is, to receive God's healing and new birth through his work, God's wrath removed, and then to worship him. The word lifted up in John, it's got a a few meanings and usages here. Uh, you know, number one, to, to like lift up. So there's a, there's a reference to crucifixion. Jesus is about to be lifted up on a cross, literally. But it's also, so it has to do with crucifixion. It also has to do with glorification in John's gospel. That God is lifting up Jesus and elevating him to a position of glory as the king. Hey, look everyone, this is the king, lifting him up in that way. Lifting up is also used in John of resurrection. So when you're dead and you're laying down, and then you come back to life and you are lifted up, you stand up. And so for John, lifted up is really all three of those packed into one. That when Jesus is lifted up, crucified, risen, and glorified, That's when God's wrath is removed and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever entrusts himself or herself to him will have eternal life. We're called to lift Jesus higher, to glorify him. In in fact, in John's Gospel, in chapter 12, there's that verse that when I was a kid, we used to sing at our vacation Bible schools, lift Jesus higher, lift him up for the world to see. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And that's in John 12. That's our mission, to carry on this testimony of Jesus that he began, the one who descended and has ascended, and who knows firsthand the way to God and brings that way to us. We're called to testify along with him, to, to glorify him and to lift him up. We've got an opportunity to do that in the next couple of weeks as we proclaim the risen Savior, as we celebrate together on Easter Sunday. So the, the last paragraph we're going to read here is that most famous verse that most of you except for Brian could read. Could, uh, Recite the chapter in reference from memory, John 3.16. Um, before we read it, in my Bible it's it's in red and it's got quotations around it. I don't know what version you have. So so this, in my in my uh, ESV translation here, they put it in the dialogue that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Yours may not have it in red letters, may not have the quotes and, and that would indicate that this is kind of a a Gospel of John theological statement that's added in. Either way is fine. Uh, The original Greek text is all caps locks with no spaces between the words and there's no red or quotation marks. So it is an interpretive decision just like where do you put the chapter numbers and the verse numbers. So feel free to read big chunks of scripture. You don't have to stop at the end of a chapter. You can find the whole context and spill into the next chapter as well. But either way, these are words from God for us today that tie into Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and his conversation with us today as those who need new birth. For God so loved the world, God loved the world in this way, like this, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. This is a gift from God, God's gift of his Son to a world under God's wrath. That theme has already been developed. It's even more explicit at the very end of John 3. The last verse in John 3, if you skip ahead and look down, it says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That Old Testament connection to the snakes, the grumbling, the rebellion, the the unbelief, and the wrath of God as a result of that, as a consequence, that's carried forward to the New Testament followers of God as well. And so God did not send his Son to bring condemnation, but to move from condemnation to salvation. Can you imagine the hope and joy on that day when people were getting bit by snakes and dying? The hope and joy when that was reversed and people were were scared and terrified and hurting and all of a sudden they were starting to realize, it's healing up. I'm going to live. My loved one is going to survive. God's wrath has been removed and there's hope. And that movement from condemnation to salvation is why Jesus came. Whoever believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now the word believe here is not just intellectual assent. At a theoretical level, I agree with the concept. This isn't all in. I'm entrusting myself to him. I'm faithing in Jesus to make up a word. That's the word believe here. Are you putting your faith wholly in Jesus or are you trusting in something else? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There is a a tight relationship in, in these words here in John 3 and carried on throughout the rest of this chapter. A tight relationship between works and belief. And anytime you go, you try to have one without the other, you venture into error. You know, there's a lot of people who think You don't need new birth. You just need to clean up your act. Try a little harder. Work harder. Do more good works. Do good stuff. And there's a cosmic scale that someday as long as the the good deeds outweigh the bad, you're good to go. That's not the message Jesus is bringing. And then on the other hand, there are people who just say, there are no works at all. There's no obedience, there's no faithfulness, there's no goodness that's required. It's all God all the time, it's the gift, it's awesome. And they, and they would like to have a cheap version of grace. And yet here in the verses that we've read here at, in John 3, we see the, the marriage of good works and belief held together, obedient faith. Now, the the new birth, it comes from heaven, right? It's a birth from above. It's not something we can do to breathe life into these dead bones. And yet the good news of this is that eternal life is not just something down there in the future. Like, oh man, I just gotta, I gotta count the days until I can finally die and experience eternal life and just muddle through this miserable, horrible existence. No, that's not eternal life. Life with God starts today and lasts forever. And that's the obedience part. That's the works part. That's the walking in light and in truth part, that we get to begin that abundant life today as we are born again, born from above. That work of God affects us today and then it carries out throughout all of our lives. Now we're going to stop there today, but I'll just give you a little, a little teaser to get you to open your own Bibles this week when you go home. Nicodemus' story doesn't end here in John 3. He pops up a couple more times in John's gospel. And so kind of keep that in mind. Like what? I wonder what happens with Nicodemus after this conversation with Jesus. Well, I'll give you a clue. Look at chapter 7 and chapter 19. And you're going to see if that genuine faith emerges in Nicodemus' heart, if he experiences that birth from above that Jesus. Talk to him about, or if he continues to walk in darkness and under God's wrath, and I I think I think you'll be you'll be excited to see what happens in Nicodemus's life, and hopefully challenged in your own life. And as you look at those neighbors, those coworkers who need good news and they need the truth of our sinful condition apart from God, of our utter dependence upon Jesus as the giver of new life, I think you'll find hope in Nicodemus's story as you look to. Once again, chapter 7 and chapter 19 and just a couple verses that give us a clue as to what direction he goes. Can we we stand together in his presence and give thanks for that new life in him, that new birth? And maybe today you're you're hearing this kind of like a punch to the gut like it was for Nicodemus. I mean, really, Jesus was not super nice to Nicodemus in this conversation. There was some direct communication that really hit him where he was. Maybe today... You're more like Nicodemus at this part in the story. And you're realizing, I need new birth. I've been thinking that I could just try a little harder, be good, be a little bit better than the next guy, and that would be good enough. And now I'm realizing my condition is more desperate than I knew. And if you're getting that realization today, I'd like to pray with you and talk with you after church because God could bring that pit in your stomach feeling to a place of joy in your heart as you experience the new birth that Jesus talked about right here. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that though we were dead in our sins, you came and you brought new life. Thank you that you invite us to enter your kingdom today, to see your kingdom, to enter your kingdom Because of the new birth that we experience through your son, Lord Jesus, thank you that the curse is lifted, that your wrath is removed, that that was taken upon you, our Lord and Savior on the cross. That you were the gift to a world under God's wrath, that we're moved from condemnation to salvation. Thank you for the joy of living for you today, experiencing abundant life as a part of that new life that leads to eternal life. And we pray for this body that your joy would be present here, that we would be salt and light in the world, that you'd use us to bring good news to those who are perishing. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.